Take your Bibles with me if you would and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's almost like a foreign language coming out of my mouth. It's not the Gospel of Luke. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, um, when I was in college, getting prepped and ready for Easter really wasn't that big a deal for me. It was really just a matter of going into my room, digging through the lump, smelling the shirt, putting it on, coming to church. Then you get married and getting ready for Easter is a big deal because then your wife picks out your clothes and your wife is buying your clothes for you months in advance, thinking and and seeing something on clearance or on sale during the wintertime and thinking automatically and saying to you, this could be a good Easter shirt and I don't even know when Easter is for the next coming year. In college, when I was doing youth ministry here, many of you, many of you know and, and can probably remember, um, I didn't even know what an ironing board was. We, we had a, a lady in the church, and she meant this in the most loving way. But one Sunday, she pulled me aside after church and said, here's some money, go buy some jeans that aren't wrinkled. <laughs> That's just the kind of guy I was. I didn't, I didn't prep. Then, you have a baby. And you thought Easter was a big deal when you were married. Now with a child, Easter is like the deal. The biggest deal. And what you wear and how you coordinate and the, the pictures you take are top-notch important. I can say all this because I don't see Jamie in here right now. But we know the truth of Easter is more about what your heart is clothed in than what you wear to church. It's more about what your heart is covered in the blood of Christ and the Gospel and saving faith. It's what you wear for eternity, the righteous robes of Christ, that matters more. That's what we celebrate during this week. The resurrection and the Gospel message, it's always on our hearts as Christians. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today from the text. It's always uh, right before our eyes and always on our minds and it should occupy those kind of places. But we take a special time out of the year, every year, to celebrate specifically and explicitly the singular event of the Lord's Lord's death and, and resurrection. And in short, we celebrate the Gospel. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about your heart and your life being clothed in the Gospel. What we talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 deals with your eternity. This is a a text that directly impacts you. You actually will have to make a choice today. And you will make a choice of faith or a choice of rejection concerning this text. In fact, you cannot come to this text and be exposed to it and not make a choice. And not make a conscious decision as I said, because it's one that deals with the most important truth that humanity can deal with. It determines your eternal destiny. And you have to make a conscious choice. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and as we talk about the resurrection of our Lord, we, we really have to at least mention this passage. This whole chapter is Paul's most extensive teaching on Christ's resurrection and its implications. And that's what he spends... Uh, the last part of this letter doing. His goal is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 15. Uh, Out of all that he said in this letter to the Corinthian believers, he comes to verse 1 of chapter 15 and he says, Now, after all of that, I want to remind you of something, brothers and sisters. I want to remind you of the Gospel. In light of everything that I've said, I want you to remember the Gospel that I preached to you. I find it interesting that he is reminding brothers and sisters of the Gospel. The Gospel message is not a one-time commitment. It's not a one-time message that we listen to and then move on to greater things in life. It is our constant message as Christians. So much so that Paul says, I want you to remember... This message that is all-encompassing and all-consuming and all-influencing of your life. In fact, he references the Gospel in verses 1 and verse 2 
in past, present, and even future tense. He says in verse 1, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, you received it to be saved, in which you stand, continuing in your salvation, and verse 2, and by which you are being saved, future tense. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, if you hold it sincerely and strongly. Paul's saying, I want you to remember this all-encompassing message. This life-changing, life-influencing message. I don't want you to neglect it. I don't want you to forget it. As I talk about the resurrection, I cannot divorce it from the Gospel. It is the Gospel, and I want you to remember it. So it's not a new teaching that he's going to lay out in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a strong reminder that some of us as Christians need today, and some of us as unbelievers need to hear for the first time. Well, he comes to verse 3, and he's going to begin explaining the Gospel. And this is where we're going to spend our time this morning, verse 3 and verse 4. Let's read these two verses. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the Gospel message. In the first part of verse 3, I want to highlight one phrase. We could pick it apart a little bit more, but one phrase I really want you to grasp this morning, and it's that phrase, first importance. Paul wants to remind the brothers and sisters of the Gospel, and he wants them to hold it in their hearts, and in their minds, and in their lives as of first importance. It is to always occupy the most important place of the believer's heart. In fact, we can say it is a a measuring rod of sincere saving faith to hold the gospel in a place of prominence in your life and in your heart. There are many people who profess faith in Christ, who think that they are Christians and yet care nothing for the gospel. For the Christian who's believed the gospel, it is of first importance that's always easier said than done, isn't it? So we have a lot of things vying for our attention, vying for our time. We're often guilty of putting the wrong things in first priority places. We focus our lives on our hobbies or our career goals. We focus our lives on our families or social justices in our country. We focus our lives on knowledge and financial security for the future. And really, we can fill in that that blank in a lot of different ways. But the truth of the matter is, there's absolutely nothing in life that is to take precedence over the gospel. Nothing in your heart, nothing is more valuable than the gospel. Nothing is more important to your soul and your eternal destiny than the message and saving work of Jesus Christ. It reigns above your family. It's supreme above your marriage. It's more important than any social initiative, no matter how good or moral it may be. Even for Paul here in verse 3, if we consider his statement, All of his understandings, all of his experiences, all of his miracles. And he says out of all of that, this is first importance. This is priority number one. This is the top and most important thing that I can give to anyone. It is the message of Christ. His first encounter with the Corinthian believers. That's what he's going to share, isn't it? Anytime he goes on a missionary journey, that's the first thing he's going to share. He's not going to give his credentials. He's not going to convince them why they should be listening to him. He's not going to 
talk about all that he's witnessed and all of his miracles and experiences. He's going to share what is of first importance to him. Gospel. It ranks above his vision of heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. It ranks above all of his miraculous efforts of healing people throughout the book of Acts. It ranks above all of his casting out of demons. It ranks above all of his extensive knowledge of spiritual things and understanding of the Old Testament. Nothing for him outranks the very message that's impacted his own heart. And that's key to verse 3. For Paul, <clears throat> the gospel is not of first importance just based on intellectual properties. The gospel is of first importance for him by experience. I'm giving to you what has impacted my own heart, my own soul, my own life. And that's the cry of every Christian, right? Every one of us evangelizing the lost, we share based off of experience. We give to you what is most important to us by experience. Notice what Paul says. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. What I needed. What became real to me. I gave to you what changed my life. It's of first importance to me because I know what it means to the human soul. It reigns supreme to me by experience. It's not outside of me. It's not foreign to me. It's not some theory. It's soul changing. The gospel is never an outside factor to somebody who's been changed by it. It forces its way into the heart. And Paul says, by experience, I'm giving to you what is of first importance. Don't just take my word for it. Look at my life. Paul was converted by the very truth that he's about to share. And that's why he can say it's of first importance. We have to ask the question now, and I hope you're asking the question, does the Gospel hold the same place of importance to you? That's the natural and piercing question that you can't escape. Paul says it, it compares to nothing. Nothing stacks up to this Gospel message. It ranks above everything else in my life. The saving work of Christ is priority number one. What about for us? Does it have that kind of importance to us? Does it occupy that kind of place in our lives? Do all other things, sinful things and good things alike, do they come in second to the Gospel? Is it in every beat of our heart? and every thought of our mind? Is it occupying us day in and day out? Is it regularly saturating our souls? Because that's the kind of message that it is. That's why Paul will say in verse 1 and verse 2, I want you to remember that which you receive, that which you stand in, and that by which you are being saved. It's all-encompassing. It's not a one-time deal. It is a life-encompassing message. It's of first importance. And if you are a true, born-again believer, it will occupy such places in your mind and in your heart as a pattern over your life. My great fear as a pastor, and I've shared this to you before church, it's that there are many people that we encounter who think they are Christians and are not. Many people who attend church regularly and have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Many people who know each and every element perfectly of the Gospel and have yet to believe it. And let it touch their hearts. What's the test? How do I know if I'm a genuinely born again, saved Christian? What do you think about the Gospel? What do you think about the work of Christ? Is it everything to you? Is it on your heart and on your mind constantly? Does it nourish you? Does it fill you up? Is it the satisfying, soul-satisfying food that you long for and yearn for? 
can you say with Paul, it is of first importance? Many people who profess Christ cannot say that. Church, that is the sobering truth of Christianity. All or nothing. Christianity is not easy. As our brother in India would testify that we prayed about this morning. Christianity is not trendy. It's not popular to be a Christian and to believe the Bible and to live by it. It's not popular to hold the Gospel as of first importance. Christianity is more than flashing lights and smoke machines and loud music and this, that, or the other. It's dangerous. It's life-changing. It's sacrificial. It's deadly. And it's always convicting. And yet, eternally worth it. The reality is, the Gospel has to be of first importance because God demands it to be so. God Himself demands complete devotion and central importance of your life. He does not allow neglect or rejection. He does not allow half-hearted commitment. He requires a faith that is all-consuming and all-influencing. That's why James would say in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. If your faith does not produce works, it's not saving biblical faith. Because faith in God that is given by God is a faith that is all-consuming where everything else melts away and the work of God and God Himself is of first importance. Paul says, remember the Gospel. It is the greatest thing you can know. It is the greatest thing you can experience. And every Christian should be able to echo his sentiment. I fear there are too many people believing in a Gospel and following a God that has rendered no change in their life. And that requires no kind of devotion and no kind of commitment. You know that's the idealistic God for most people. People just want a God that only serves to meet their needs. And make them feel good about life. Let me tell you, that's not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible, the one true God, is not only worthy of first importance, He demands first importance. Christianity is an all-consuming faith. Not a half-hearted commitment. Well, in the rest of verse 3 and verse 4, Paul begins to explain what is of first importance. And it's these three elements of the Gospel that he mentions. First, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Don't grow complacent with that phrase. We often do, don't we? Especially living in the part of the country that we live in. It's a blessing that God would allow us to live in such a location where the Gospel is so freely proclaimed. And yet, the danger of it for many is that these kind of things become too normalized and familiar. We hear the, the phrase, Christ died for our sins, and we say, yeah, I agree with that. Often forgetting the significance. What's remarkable to begin with about this phrase, Christ died for our sins, is that it was all planned out by God Himself. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching his first sermon. And in verse 23, he says this about Jesus. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death. 
Christ's death on the cross, Christ dying for our sins was God's plan, definite plan, His initiative, His design, and His execution. It's what makes Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 8 so remarkable. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Why? Because you had something to offer to God? Not at all. Before you knew you needed a Savior, God had a definite plan. He was acting according to that plan. We see it through several places in Scripture. Paul even references it here. He says he died according to the Scripture. God has been foretelling this whole time that Messiah was going to come and die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first picture of it. The first glimpse of Christ coming to crush the serpent's head. We find it again in the very familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 53. If I can find Isaiah in my Bible. <clears throat> Chapter 53, verses 1 through 7. Centuries before. Centuries before Christ is born. God is sharing this awesome truth. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should des desire Him. But He was despised and even rejected by men. A man of sorrows, as we sang, and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Yet surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten, punished by God and afflicted. But instead, He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has instead laid on Him the sin of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted and yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Christ went humbly and willingly to the cross for your sins by the definite plan of God. God has been preparing the world for centuries. There's coming one to die for your sins. There's coming one to atone for your sins. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about the persistence of God to redeem sinners? What does that tell us about the love of God and the, and the patience of God to endure generation after generation after generation of wickedness so that Christ might come and die for the sins of humanity that human beings, sinful creatures like us, might be able to be forgiven? What does this Truth say about God that Christ died according to the Scriptures. God has planned for our salvation for centuries and millennia. How many people think they're too far gone to be saved? And how many people think God doesn't care about them or God doesn't love them? Look at how long He's been working for your redemption. Christ died for our sins. There are other things I want us to consider real quick to try to understand the significance of what Paul is saying here. Let us first consider if Christ hadn't have died for our sins. What would be the result if verse 3 was not true? We would still be in our sins. Adam and Eve are the ones who sinned in Genesis 3. Most of us know that. And in that moment, sin came into the world and it spread to everybody. 
Romans chapter 5, Paul explains this very truth. In verse 12 he says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so then death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin became a natural inheriting mark of humanity. And if Christ is not going to atone for our sins, no one can atone for our sins. Christ had to come and die for us because none of us could be the sacrifice. None of us could be the spotless lamb. None of us could atone for even our own sins, much more the sins of everybody else around us. If Christ does not die for our sins, you and I are still in our sins and still under the wrath and punishment of God. Understand what sin actually is. It is disobedience and rebellion against Almighty God. And before you think that's just unfair, remember your plight. You are a creature of the dust rebelling against your Creator. Let the seriousness of sin begin to grow in your heart now. Here's one who is holy and pure and moral and good by definition and powerful and just. And He cannot ignore disobedience. No rightful judge, even in our criminal justice system, should or could ignore crime. How much more an infinitely holy God who has had finite creatures disobey Him. In God's mind, and that's the only thing that really matters, sin is so serious that He has created an eternal place of punishment for such sin. It's called Hell, it is a very real place. God so despises sin and wickedness that He will not let it go unpunished. And if Christ has not died, all humanity is doomed to such punishment. It's a punishment of fury punishment of wrath. It's a holy and all-powerful and just God giving sin its rightful wages. Let us consider what Christ had to endure to make verse 3 possible. We know the seriousness and the plight. We don't really have to spend a whole lot of time there. If you reject Christ, if And if Christ did not die for our sins, we're in a hopeless place. Let's continue on. What did Christ have to endure to secure our salvation? He had to endure arrest, beatings, false accusations, public ridicule, humiliation, and yet none of that was really anything to Christ. Enduring those kind of things, that was a piece of cake. There are much greater things for him to endure. When Paul talks about Jesus dying for sins, we know what that implies. It means he had to endure that divine wrath and punishment that sin deserves. If a just God is demanding sin to be dealt with and punished, and he cannot ignore it, then somebody has to pay the penalty. It was Christ. Verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. We see Christ in distress. He takes His disciples to a place called Gethsemane to pray. And in verse 37, He begins to be sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, He tells His disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Verse 39, He leaves them and He goes off by Himself. He falls on His face and He prays, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. What has Christ in such turmoil? He does that two more times. What has Christ's soul in sorrow and in 
distress? Is it the arrest? No. Is it the beatings? No. Is it being nailed to a cross? No. It's the spiritual reality of taking the wrath and punishment for our sins. What Christ had to endure to make verse 3 true is enormous, church. Enormous. We begin to see why Paul would say this message is of first importance. Because if Christ did not die, I'm doomed to punishment. And because Christ did die, He took my punishment upon Himself. Other things Christ had to endure, He had to endure the very disgust of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to become, to become sin so that we might become righteous. Luke 12 again references Jesus saying, I am in distress because of the cross. Nails didn't scare Jesus. Riots didn't scare Jesus. Angry mobs didn't scare Him. False accusations didn't scare Him. He's in distress at the punishment and penalty He is about to endure for you. Let us consider now the outcome of what Christ accomplished by dying for our sins. He accomplished our forgiveness and our deliverance. Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only way that's possible is because Christ died for our sins. He has accomplished our unity with God. Before Christ, we are complete opposites of God. We are, by definition, ungodly. And yet, in Christ, because of Him dying for our sins, we now have Romans 5, verse 1 to be true of us. We have been justified by faith. And therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who were infinitely separated from a holy God have been brought near in Christ. His death secured our inheritance of heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Liberation from sin. All those things that bring shame and guilt upon your heart are erased for eternity. Freedom from accusation. How liberating is that truth? The enemy can level any accusation he wants, but... We are liberated from them because Christ died for our sins. Understand this reality. Christ died for you in your worst condition. When you were un, unbeautiful, you're not, you're not attractive at all. You're covered in sin. You're corrupted. You offer nothing. You bring nothing to the table. You contribute nothing. And even in your worst condition, here's Christ saying, I am willing to die for sin. Because if not, they're doomed. I'll take the penalty. I'll take the punishment that they might, they might be forgiven and delivered and united to God and, and guaranteed heaven and liberated from sin and accusations. What Paul has to say here in just these few simple words Church, it's our eternity. It's our everything. It is our first importance. Real quickly, he moves on in verse 4. It's not just that Christ died for our sins, it was that He was buried as well. I, I just want you to realize that's not symbolic. That's reality. The author of life in this moment literally had no heartbeat. No brain activity. His chest wasn't compressing. His muscles had no life. His organs were not working. His body was in reality and in fact entirely, completely, totally dead. Every ounce of life gone. That's 
So much so that his disciples and followers felt hopeless. They thought it was all over. They were afraid. There's no oxygen in his body. No blood getting moved. Nothing. But a lifeless corpse. Laid on a stone slab. Sealed up. Praise God that's not the end. He was buried as any other dead man would be buried. Yet, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's what we celebrate today. And that church is is what is of central importance for us. I'm convinced the more I read Acts and watch the apostles go forth and evangelize the world, that we don't give the resurrection its due importance. We often stop with Christ died for our sins. We often stop when we're sharing the Gospel. We often stop at the cross, don't we? Because that's where we see sin being dealt with. That's where we we can talk about Christ dying for your sins and and Christ taking your sin on on Himself and dealing with it and paying your penalty. But the reality is, the cross would be nothing more than public humiliation if the resurrection were not true. If the resurrection doesn't happen, Jesus is a lunatic who has misled hundreds of people and has been easily thwarted by the Roman government. Without verse 4, there is no Gospel. Without verse 4, there is no salvation. If Christ is still in the tomb, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're hopeless people. Ignorant people. Misled people. Our eternal salvation hinges completely, church, on the fact that Christ lives again. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Christ is not raised, we have no justification. The resurrection is the final proof and validation that all of Jesus' work and all of His sacrifice on the cross was acceptable in the sight of God and fruitful, efficient, effective. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verses 23, 24, and 25, we encounter a beautiful word. It's the word propitiation. I actually just want to read the verse. Verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation means appeasement and satisfaction. God put forward Christ as an appeasement and satisfaction. For His wrath against sin. The resurrection is proof that Christ appeased the just wrath of God for sin to make a way of forgiveness for sinners. And we look at the resurrection and we celebrate that. That His work on the cross actually did work. That He didn't remain dead. He did deal with sin. He did atone for our sins. Or, uh, for for. Our shortcomings, our failures. We look at the resurrection in church, we we celebrate that the gospel is true. That you can actually be forgiven by God. You've transgressed the most powerful being who will ever exist. You have transgressed and disobeyed with your immorality and your prideful thoughts and your lustful eyes and your lying tongue. You have disobeyed the very character of God, your Creator. And Christ died that you might be forgiven. 
And the resurrection is proof that God is willing to forgive in Christ. Paul uses the same language here as he did to refer to his death. He says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We actually have two New Testament writers explain that truth for us. It's Peter and it's Paul. Both of them are speaking and Luke is recording it in Acts. Acts chapter 2 again, back to Peter's sermon. Verse 25, he says, For David says concerning him, and he quotes a psalm of David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter interprets that text for us in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So that psalm wasn't true for David. It wasn't applicable, applicable to David. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and then Peter says, and of that we all are witnesses. Paul says it as well, quoting the very same passage in Acts chapter 13. In verse 34, Paul says this, speaking. He says, as for the fact that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way by David. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36, Paul says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died and was laid with his fathers and did see corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Talking about Christ. Equally as true that God predicted the death of Christ for sins, God also definitely planned on the resurrection of Christ. Christ would rise, secure our eternity. Look in verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul takes it even further. Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Then He appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Then He appeared to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Notice the case that He's building. Peter. The twelve. More. Five hundred. Others. James and apostles. And then verse 8, the crescendo, last of all, He appeared to me. He makes the resurrection experiential again. I know the resurrection to be true. Just as I know the Gospel is of first importance because it's changed my soul, so too I know the resurrection to be true. Now, Paul, of course, saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You and I as well today can know by experience that the resurrection is true. The same power that rose Christ working in our lives, making us more godly, making us more Christ-like and believing the Gospel and giving faith from God to believe the Gospel. We know the resurrection to be true. 
And in that resurrection, Christ has given us victory over death and sin. Paul will close this chapter saying death is swallowed up in victory because of Christ's resurrection. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the context, how does He claim that victory? It's through the resurrection. Resurrection is our liberation. It's our guarantee of future resurrection with Christ. It's our hope. You and I have no hope if Christ is still dead. If Christ is still dead, Satan has won. God is not alive and chaos ensues. But because Christ has risen from the dead, there's victory. Satan is vanquished. Sin is dealt with. Death is temporary. And hope abounds. The sobering reality of this message is that it's only for those who place their faith in Christ. If you do not trust in Christ for salvation, the event is still true. Christ died for sins. And Christ rose on the third day. That doesn't change the reality of that event. It just means it's not applicable to you. It's only applicable to you if you come to Christ in humility, asking for forgiveness of sins, trusting in Him for salvation, and surrendering your life to Him. Is that of first importance to you? When you realize the significance of your sin before a holy God, what Christ endured to secure your redemption, you really begin to see how important this message is. How important it is for you. Don't be misled. Don't follow a false gospel. Don't listen to the lies of the world that you can be good enough or talk your way out of punishment or God will love you because you're a church member or an American or this, that, or the other. The only way this text applies to you is if you come to Christ in faith and ask Him to save you. Paul says, I give this to you as of first importance. I'm reminding you of what I gave you as of first importance. Because it is everything. This is the only message, the only work, that determines a positive eternity. This is what secures heaven. This is what secures forgiveness. This is what we must place our faith in. I want to leave you with one last thought from 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 20, Paul says this, We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. So we implore you and beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to simply hear the message and be unchanged and unaffected by it. Every time you hear the Gospel message, it is the grace of God extending to you. Don't hear it in vain. And Paul goes on to say, for he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's why we celebrate Easter. Because in it we have salvation. In Christ's death and resurrection we find our life. And we echo with Paul. We are ambassadors begging and imploring and pleading with you to be saved. Genuinely and truly saved. To lay aside all pride and all fear of what your reputation might become 
if you come forward and ask Christ to be your Savior and profess faith in Him. We ask you to lay all those worries and fears aside and realize that today is the day of salvation. The grace of God has been extended in the Gospel. Do not hear it in vain. Christ died for your sins, paying a significant price that you might be forgiven. He rose from the dead to declare victory and guarantee your eternal salvation if only you come to Him in faith. Oh believer, this is the message in which we stand. This is the message in which we rest in and find confidence and strength and peace and hope. We can endure whatever may happen in this world no matter how tragic because of this singular message. So believer, be encouraged by it. Hold it as first importance. Don't let go. Don't neglect it. Don't have a half-hearted commitment to it. Share it. Rest in it. An unbeliever, come find life in it. Come find life in Christ. Come seek salvation. And God will be faithful to save. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. So much must be said about it, God, and it is often so hard to include everything. God, we labor. I stand here myself this morning, God, laboring, trying to say something that will spark in somebody's heart, pleading and, and begging and yearning in my soul with, with pain and anguish and longing. God, if I could, if I could, if I could just say the right thing or, or convince someone enough or, or expound the text clearly enough, God, I would do it, but the reality is, I, although I labor, only You touch the heart. God, You know our desires here. Those of us who belong to You as children who know the Gospel and would definitely say that it's of first importance to us. You know what our desire is. Our desire is for the lost to be converted. To be saved. And yet God, that's entirely Your work. Yes, we labor. Yes, we implore. Yes, we inadequately try to explain a text that someone just maybe might see and hear and believe. But God, if You do not move in hearts this morning, it's all in vain. God, would You move in hearts in such a way today? One heart. Two hearts, God. Would You pierce them in such a way, convict them so deeply they would not be able to resist. They would come, profess faith in You, and be saved. This is why You died. And this is why we preach. Help us to share this message. Help us to rejoice in this message. Help us to celebrate this message. Help us to clothe our hearts in this message. Help us to live by it, God. It is everything to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.